Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 287, Science in a Spacesuit. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight, and more. If you're an active listener of this podcast, hopefully you're familiar with spacewalking. But if not, in short, this is where astronauts put on those puffy white spacesuits so they can work on the outside of a spacecraft. Most recently, we see these a lot aboard the International Space Station for maintenance and upgrade tasks, like swapping out batteries and installing new solar arrays. But not very often do astronauts go outside in a spacesuit to conduct science. And that activity is coming up soon. Scientists have been preparing for an extravehicular science activity called the International Space Station External Microorganism Study. During a spacewalk with other maintenance and upgrade tasks, spacewalkers will dedicate some time to conducting a scientific activity to understand more about the microbial environment on the outside of the International Space Station that can help us to better understand likely contaminants for when we're exploring the moon and other planets. This study has been a long time in the making and is about to launch to the International Space Station on Northrop Grumman's CRS-19 cargo mission. We're lucky enough to bring in the project lead, Dr. Aaron Regberg, who's also a geo-microbiologist and a planetary protection lead. He's coming on the podcast to help us describe what this experiment is all about. So let's get right into it. Enjoy. Aaron Regberg, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, we're going to be talking about this project that you've been working on for quite some time. Um, but I know you have a very interesting, I want to stop, start with your job title actually, because it's so interesting when you, when you, when you sent the email, uh, and we were going back and forth talking about this, it said, it said, Dr. Aaron Regberg, geo microbiologist and planetary protection lead. So what, what's, what exactly does that mean? What, what's your role here at Johnson? So I, I kind of have a couple different hats that I wear here. Um, my, mm-hmm. my primary job is as an astromaterials curator. So that's one of the scientists that helps to take care of all of the extraterrestrial samples that we've collected. Mm-hmm. And I am the one that tries to keep the clean rooms microbially clean mm-hmm. and worries about you know terrestrial microbes altering our samples. Um, and then in addition to that, I am sort of the planetary protection point of contact for the Space Center. Uh, and planetary protection is like this kind of weird discipline that sits at the edge of science and engineering, kind of at the boundary of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and our job is to make sure that we don't inadvertently contaminate other planets. So take Earth bacteria to Mars, for example, and, and then when we're trying to look for life on Mars, all we find is the bacteria that we brought with us. But it's also about making sure that we don't accidentally bring anything scary or dangerous back from other planets. Mm. Um, so you know, back in Apollo times for the first couple of Apollo missions, they were really worried about, you know, dangerous microbes from the moon and everything was quarantined, the astronauts, the samples. That was sort of proto-planetary protection on the on the backward side. 
Okay. All right. So you're not like commander in chief for alien invasions. <laughs> Absolutely okay. not. No. Right. It sounds like <laughs> a even, cool title. And though. even if I was, there's there's somebody at headquarters who is the planetary protection officer. Thinking and, about and exactly that. And yeah. they're in, they're in charge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, still, that's that that's a good description for exactly what we're going to be talking about today, which is this this uh, this project that's happening on the International Space Station. But it's it uh, just on this background, this geomicrobiologist, and and you have that day to day job of just making sure the the um, the the materials that we have in our curation facility are protected as well, and you're you're thinking about the contamination for our planet and for others. I wonder what got you to where you are. How do you how do you kind of go down the path to get you where you are today? Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question and one I get a lot. And I don't think yeah. I have a particularly like standard or normal career path. I don't think any of us do. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I studied geology in in college. Um, and then when I went to get my PhD, I was really interested in how the microbiological world affects geology. And so I studied for my PhD um, bacteria that dissolve rocks. And the way that they dissolve rocks, they're actually metabolically, they're, they're breathing them. So they don't breathe oxygen. They, they sort of breathe iron oxides um, and, and reduce those iron oxides and make them soluble. Uh, all of that work ended up leading me to a job in industry for a while, actually. So I was mm. uh, doing research for an oil company, studying bacteria that lived in oil reservoirs and how they were altering the physical properties of the rocks underground and the chemical properties of the oil, and then trying to use all of that information to see if we could look for more oil, because that's primarily what oil companies are interested in. Sure. Um, and after after being there for about five years, I kind of realized it wasn't wasn't a great fit for me culturally, um, and I just happened that this position that I have now uh, in the curation office at NASA was being advertised right as I was kind of looking around and and thinking about wanting to do something else, and I was I was qualified for it in part because of the the work and the things that I had learned at the oil company. Um, okay. So I I know people want to ask that question and have like a path that they can replicate. But the advice that I always try to give people is just follow things that look interesting to you because it's hard to predict where where it's going to end up. That's, yeah, that's really good advice because look where you are now. And now you get to work on this fantastic project and that's sort of what I want to get into. So it's extra or external microorganisms on the International Space Station. So at first glance, right, it kind of sounds like there's these creepy crawlies around the outside of the space station, but I know it's more complicated than that. Just what in general is this study and what what are we exactly looking for as part of this? So so we're looking for evidence that, that microbes, bacteria, and fungi um, from the inside of space station are leaking out of space station and surviving in a way where either either... either because they're dormant or because they're actually growing, which is less likely, but surviving in a way that we can detect them by, by going out and sampling the outside of space station. Uh, and the reason we're trying to do this is, is directly tied into the planetary protection stuff that we were talking about a minute ago. Mm. The systems that are used on the International Space Station and for our spacesuits today are likely very similar to the systems that we want to use to, to get people to Mars and to land on Mars and to have habitats on Mars. Um, all, of the, all of the vents and ports on the outside of space station are unfiltered currently. 
Um, so whatever is inside is just being shot out into space. Um, and that's totally fine for low Earth orbit. We're not worried about contaminating low Earth orbit with stuff from Earth. Yeah. But it could be a problem for Mars if we're going to send humans to Mars and we want them to look for signs of life and they're living in this habitat that is just, you know, venting gas and, and maybe leaking a little bit of water out onto the surface, we could be creating our own contaminated zone around the around the habitat. Hmm. So, you know, as a scientist, I'm like, okay, well, put some filters on those vents. Like, go off, do it, it'll be fine. Like, here's the size filter. Um, but when you talk to engineers, they want to know, well, okay, well, how, what's the threshold of leakage that's acceptable? What's, you know, how many microbes is too many? And how many microbes are we leaking now? And we have no idea because we've never measured it. So mm -hmm. the, the like really big picture idea for this experiment is just to kind of gather that sort of data so that we can go back to the engineers and say, okay, here are the specifications for the system we want you to design. Oh, wow. This, uh, this is, I mean, this experiment is huge. It's going to potentially inform the design for events and filters on Mars landers and we, stuff. We hope so. Yeah. Wow. That, that's the, the goal is to start gathering that data to close um, that knowledge gap. The idea of contamination, like what this, the, the concern in the first place, is it, is it more so that uh, the microbes are being shot out and we could potentially like misidentify uh, and just you say, oh, there's life on Mars, but actually it's the stuff that we've been shooting out? Or is it, um, it does it sort of maybe ruin the science for, you know, what, describe what, what exactly um, contamination means? It's kind of both. I, I think hmm. it's, it, you know, one concern is that we could mistake terrestrial microbes for native Martian life or wherever we're going. The other concern, and maybe this is more likely, is that the terrestrial microbes would grow and proliferate on the surface of Mars and would, would cover up any evidence of indigenous life. Mm. Um, so it would be like, you know, introducing a, a non-native species somewhere on Earth, like the, the cane toads in Australia, and they just sort of proliferate and get out of control, and then we can't find what we're looking for because all we're able to see is the, is the stuff that we brought with us. Mm. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Now, in terms of this this study, right? I think I think you mentioned that you know you're trying to come up with uh, you know the engineers are asking for specifications on how much you're leaking, but you mentioned we don't know. So, is this study truly novel in that we have we we really haven't had a chance yet to go out and swab an external environment in you know an external space environment? We have there's no is there any history here that we can learn from? There is. There is. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the 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 Russian cosmonauts have actually gone out and tried to collect these samples from portions of the Russian segments of ISS. Huh. Um, and they were really focused on trying to cultivate and grow any microorganisms that they collected, and they were able to do that. Um, so that is some sort of preliminary evidence that there may actually be living organisms on the outside of station. Hmm. There are some, you know, anytime you do an experiment, you always look at it afterwards and you're like, oh, I could have done this better. I could have improved that. And so there are some things like that with the Russian experiment. And so what we're trying to do is to replicate their experiment and do a couple things a, a little bit differently to try to, to make the data more robust. Um, we're also not focused on trying to grow anything. We're going to freeze the samples and bring them back and just sequence any DNA we can find. Mm. Um, 
part of the reason for doing that is that we think that's more similar to the kind of measurements people might want to make on other planets. Um, it's unlikely that we're going to fly a bunch of, you know, Petri dishes and stuff all the way to Mars. It's a lot of mass and <laughs> I see. for other reasons. Um, so w- that's, that's kind of what we're doing. You, you mentioned the kit, and I definitely want to understand, like, the experiment just as a whole, but just the beginnings of this, right? Whenever you were having these conversations about filters and stuff, when you started having the conversation with engineers to, well, where can we, what can we do to get the data we need to inform the engineers about filters? How did you eventually make your way from that conversation to let's get in a spacesuit and swab <laughs> the filters? So how did, how did that journey happen? Um, a lot of that conversation, I think, actually started even before I got to NASA. This was sort of oh. an idea that people had um, it, on, on day one when I showed up. And they had already built a prototype kit and they were testing it um, on the ground and in analog environments. Uh, it was primarily an engineering-led effort, as I, as I understand it. And the engineers were having a little bit of trouble keeping things sterile. Um, so they were getting some contamination in their controls. And so I think what happened is they said, oh, there's this new guy that showed up and he's like half a microbiologist and half a geologist. And he's, he, maybe he has some ideas about things that we can do differently to try to cut down on the, on the contamination. So um, you got pulled in. So That's I got pulled in. I yeah. Um, and then, you know, how things kind of go at NASA, people move on to other positions or get pulled into other projects and, sort of all of a sudden I found myself um, writing the writing the proposal to try to get more funding to actually get it up onto ISS because the people who had pulled me in had been themselves pulled into, you know, other other activities. Kind of worked out in your favor though, because you became the lead of that. I yeah. did, yeah. It is it's 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 really exciting actually. Yeah, that's really cool. Um so you, you mentioned uh I don't I don't think we we addressed when you came to NASA. So I started at NASA in twenty seventeen. 2017. Okay. Mm-hmm. Relatively so, recent. So relatively past, recently. So past yeah. couple years, you guys have been working on something like this. Okay. So you wrote the proposal uh, and and now it's going to be flying. Just, okay, let's let's get into exactly what it is. You're the guy they pulled in and said, hey, we're having some trouble with contamination. How did you solve that? How did you solve the techniques to make sure you were minimizing contamination? Uh, a lot of it was just, it. so the tool that they had was already well-suited, the prototype was already well-suited to sort of keep things clean and sterile. A lot of it was just sort of sterile technique or aseptic technique when, when thinking about cleaning it and putting it back together um, and keeping, trying to minimize, you know, contamination from, from the people working with the tool. So we um, started cleaning it in the precision uh, cleaning facilities at the, inside the Astro Materials Curation Building which are a little bit more specialized uh, than I think the, the, the other ones on center. Um, and so that helped. And then when we, we did all of the assembly after we cleaned and sterilized everything, we worked inside um, what's called a biosafety cabinet. But it's a, it looks kind of like a chemical fume hood, mm. but it's specifically for trying to work as, as aseptically or sterily as possible. So working inside that cabinet, um, helped us to to eliminate or minimize uh, any concerns about contamination. Hmm. When when the astronauts would be doing it in the spacesuits, is the environment itself, just being in the vacuum of space, kind of working in your favor in terms of minimizing contamination? 
It might. Um, but that's yeah, that's a question that we kind of, kind of open question that we have. But what we're going to have them the do yeah. is yeah. So in the kit we have we have eight sort of swabs, um, and we're going to have them use six of them to swab surfaces, okay. um, and then we're going to have them take a seventh one and just open it up and kind of hold it out for thirty seconds or a minute, and then put it back without touching anything as like a control as a control. Okay. Yeah, and then the eighth one will be another control or a blank where it never gets opened. So we we did all the assembly, we put it together. And so if we find something in that sample, we know it's something that we accidentally introduced. Okay. Okay, so the kit that they're going to be bringing out with them, right? I think um, is the idea here that they do this job as one of the many activities in a six and a half hour EVA, right? It's not it's not a dedicated swab EVA, right? No, no, it's, no, yeah. absolutely not. Right. No, in, in fact, um, we're probably going to be what's called a, a get-ahead task. Oh, you don't even get on the timeline. Oh man. Um, well, it's, it's all in flux. The number, the, you know, the the way they schedule EVAs is. I'm learning a lot about it right now. Yeah, it's it's tight. A lot of people want to do a lot of things. But it's yeah, it's really tight. Um, and so the the latest greatest plan that I'm aware of is that we'll be sort of the last the last task at the end of the EVA. Okay. And it'll it, where where we get samples from, um, and how many samples we get will in some part depend on you know how the rest of the EVA went and how much time they have at the end. Yeah. So what are the locations that were most interesting, the ones you identified? Because you're not just be swabbing random areas no, of the outside, right? No. So we've identified um, some of these venting locations near the airlock. Um, one of them is a, is a location uh, that is used to vent carbon dioxide from inside stations. So they have carbon dioxide... Uh, removal systems that scrub CO2 out of the atmosphere to keep it safe and appropriate for the astronauts, and then that CO2 gets vented out into space. Okay. Um, so we think maybe there are microbes, you know, hitching a ride in that in that gas stream. Hmm. Um, the other locations will be around the airlock. So the airlock, you can kind of think of it like a big vent, that right? Every sense. time you yeah. open the door, you get a, you know, they pull vacuum, but you get a little puff of gas, and whatever is on the astronaut suits. Is going out, out, um, and then the the other location, the other vents. We're still kind of talking about um, one idea. Is there are some vents that are releasing hydrogen? Um, that there's a so there's a machine on the inside of station that produces oxygen from by splitting water. So the hydrogen is a byproduct, and that just gets vented okay. out into space. Um, and then there are some other, I guess. CO2 scrubbing systems that we might try to go sample. Again, some of it is going to depend on how much time the astronauts have. So we're sort of trying to, right now, we're having this discussion. We're trying to generate like a priority list. Like, okay, if you have the full amount of time that we asked for, go do this and this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And if we only have 15 minutes, maybe we'll just collect six samples right around the airlock right. um, without going anywhere and we'll look at that data, and then try to make a case for, for more time on a different EVA. Which would be convenient. The airlock would be convenient because they start and end the spacewalk there, right? But um, I guess what you're evaluating is, are these other places, could they potentially have more or less microbes? Or that is the, Are you evaluating that, the microbial environment? That's right. I see. Yeah. Um, and so the, the vents actually have these little covers on them, I think, to protect them from micrometeorite damage. 
And so we've gotten permission to be for the astronauts to actually peel back that little cover and, and mm. swab underneath. And so if you kind of think about areas where microbes like to survive, there's this kind of, you know, shielded area around that vent. There's little spurts of gas coming out every now and then. It might be a little bit warmer or a little bit more humid than just a random surface on the outside of station. Mm. So we really think that if we're going to find anything anywhere, that those kind of locations are where where we think we might find them. It's like like where you kind of have to think about like where like mold forms where mold in your house. Would grow in your house. Yeah, yeah it's the yeah. warm, dark kind of places thinking. that you don't that you don't go that often. And is, does the sun have anything to do with it? Because I, like I'm just, I'm assuming like uh, in these areas the sun wouldn't shine. So would that be favorable to microbes to grow? Yeah. So okay. u- ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Is a, is pretty good at at sterilizing um, and, ki- and killing a lot of microbes in space. So yeah, anywhere where we can find some some sort of shady spots and protected spots are are more likely to to have microbial populations. Okay. All right. So in terms of the um, the full kit, the the actual pieces of scientific hardware and and tools that they're actually going to bring out to this vent. When they when they bring it out, what exactly? You mentioned some swab kits. You mentioned all of that, but what exactly is is going to be part of their bag that they're taking out to the worksite? So it's it's this box basically, and it's got um, canisters kind of set into it. And mm-hmm. the box is I always tell people it's about the size of a bread box, but I know that's not a great reference anymore. <laughs> but it's it's like a, you know kind of a foot by six inches. Okay. Um, and there are these metal canisters inset in it, and each inside each canister is uh, a swab that kind of looks like a giant version of the swabs that we've all been sticking up our nose for for COVID tests for the past <laughs> few years. Okay. Um, it's a, it's actually a commercially available swab that's designed to take a sample from the inside of your cheek. Um, so the head of the swab is about the size of a nickel. Oh, okay. That's a little bigger than the stuff they put up your nose. Yeah, for yeah, yeah, a little bigger. Cause, and that's so it's easier for the astronauts to work with in the spacesuit gloves because those are kind of clunky and hard to ma- manipulate things. Okay, so, so that that was probably a huge consideration. What, like make sure it's not terribly fine where they would have yeah. to really strain their fingers to do yeah. it. Yeah, and so they have a big, a big handle um, that is actually a, a repurposed piece of equipment that was used to repair uh, tiles on the space shuttle if they needed to. Oh, okay. Um, and so you plug that handle into one of the canisters and you pull out the swab and you take your, you know, you swab your surface, um, just like they do on the inside of space station, or just like you would use a Q-tip to kind of clean a little corner in your bathroom or something. And then you pop that swab back into the canister and the canister has a, a, a hermetic seal at the top. Um, and at the bottom, there's a, a filter and the, f- the filter is made out of Teflon and the, the pore sizes are smaller than um, most of the bacteria that we find on Earth. Mm. Uh, the, the pore size is 0.2 microns. Um, and that filter is really important because the canister has to be able to equalize pressure with the outside environment. So it has to be able to go to vacuum. Oh, if it was yeah. If it was completely sealed up and there was no vent on it, you would take it outside and you would open it and there would be this little, you know, puff of gas. Um, and I, that's a safety concern, I think, because if you didn't have it put together correctly, you know, it could pop the top off and things could go floating out into space. I was going to say, space it can and, compromise the whole canister too, yeah, maybe, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so we put this filter stack on the bottom, okay. and that lets it equalize pressure when we take it out, and it also lets it equalize pressure when we come back in. Um, but it'll keep whatever microbes that we collected in there. They'll they'll they won't make it through the filter. Hopefully, they'll stay stuck to the swab. But if they don't, they'll end up on that on that filter. Okay. Yeah. It's just for it's just for the pressure, and no microbes are going to escape it. Okay. Yeah. That's a cool design. And I like the handle design too, because you don't have to like pinch that little swab or yeah. anything. You got this big handle to help you maneuver it in a in a bulky spacesuit. That's a that's a very interesting design. Yeah. Credit to the tools engineers for that. That's they they came up with that. Very that idea. cool. Okay. So they got the the handles for each of those. The swabs are actually gonna go in the vent. Then you got one that you just stick up into the vacuumist face and put down mm-hmm. and one that you leave and that's your eight. Yep. And that's okay. all eight. Yep. All right. And so, yeah, so it's this big box. Okay. So then what happens after you do your samples, you bring it back in the airlock. Yep. Uh, we bring it back inside. Uh, we have to take, there's a whole bunch of attachment points on the outside of that box so that, you know, the astronauts have a bunch of different ways to tether it to their suit or attach it to their suit. So they have an easy way to work with it. Um, we have to take we have to have the astronauts take all those off so that it will fit in the freezer that's on space station. So we're going to freeze the entire box at minus 80 Celsius. Um, so that's a temperature that works really well for preserving microbes and uh, preserving DNA. Okay. And it's just going to sit in the freezer until we get a ride back on a SpaceX vehicle and it'll come back in a, uh, special, like a, it's like a, they call it a cold ba- or a double cold bag. It's like a really fancy soft cooler with special ice packs in it so that it stays frozen all the way back to Earth. Okay. Um, and then we'll get it back here to JSC and we'll bring it into our labs and we'll take those those swabs apart and extract DNA uh, and then work with some collaborators to to try to sequence that DNA. I'm guessing the DNA sequencing process is a little more complicated, which is why you didn't opt for the on-orbit DNA sequencer. It is, yeah. Um, one actually one of the one of the problems with the onboard DNA sequencer is we've optimized all of our processes to work with those really f- small swabs that they yeah. use inside, and we actually don't have a procedure for how to get a big swab processed and onto that sequencer. Um, so that was something where we kind of looked at it and I talked, um, with, with Sarah Wallace, who's one of the scientists that, that helps to, to design operations for that sequencer on space. Um, and she's actually on this project as well. And we both kind of decided that it would just be simpler and more effective to try to do it on earth. And the sequencers that we have on earth, the sequencer that is in space is amazing. Um, but like a lot of things, the sequencers that we have on earth, the instruments that we have on earth are sometimes a little bit more sensitive than what we can afford to fly to space because mm-hmm. of mask constraints and and things like that. So we thought we'd have our best chance of detecting something if we did at least the first time all of the work on the ground. Okay. If we get an opportunity to do this again and if this becomes part of a sort of routine monitoring package, um, we will try to figure out how to do the analysis in space. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it, it definitely goes beyond just swab size as the reason for going to the ground. It's, you have better instrumentation. You can, you can have a lot more confidence in your scientific results. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I, that was going to be my next question was the, the repetition of this. Obviously you got, you have the six samples plus the two controls. Um, it's, you know, that's, uh, that's a decent sample size, but it sounds like you, you definitely want more to have the more confidence, right? So 
Yeah, we'd like to replicate the experiment. And, and then the sort of long-term thought that we have is that this may become part of something that we just ask astronauts to do routinely to verify that all of our equipment is working correctly. So, hmm. for example, if you send someone to Mars um, and you're worried about contamination and you've installed filters or, or whatever, you still need to be able to, to make some measurement to understand that the whole system is working correctly. Um, and so you could, you could use this swab in that situation as well to make sure that you weren't accidentally leaking microbes out of a, a filtered vent, for example. Okay, that could be part of routine Mars operations. Routine Mars operations, okay. yeah. It's something we're considering, you know, maybe asking people to try practicing with on, on Artemis. Um, oh, yeah. You would, can do the same thing you there. You could do the same thing on the surface of the moon um, just to kind of get people familiar with it. it. It also just helps to understand, you know, as, as a curator, um, we spend a lot of time thinking about contamination and worrying about contamination. And we do everything to the best of our ability to make sure there is no contamination. But that's kind of an impossible task. <laughs> uh, there's always going to be some kind of contamination. So it's important from a science, a science perspective to try to characterize, you know, you do best you can to make sure there's no contamination, but then you try to characterize whatever, whatever gets through your controls anyway, so that you, you have a really clear picture of what, you know, what is a real scientific signal that you're measuring and what is, is maybe from, from a contaminant. What does, um, sequencing the, the microbes help you to do? Like you can identify where where the microbes came from what are the most what are the best that could survive very harsh conditions what are you looking potentially, for potentially yeah um so at a, at the most basic level dna sequencing will help us identify what microbes were present in the sample so were there bacteria were there fungi were there some other kind of organism that we weren't expecting mm -hmm. um if we have enough dna we can try to sequence um, not just genes that let us identify who is there, but genes that tell us about what those organisms are capable of metabolically. So can they breathe oxygen or are they like those weird bacteria that I studied in grad school that can breathe iron and don't need any oxygen? Um, that requires collecting more biomass usually, so we're not sure we're going to be able to do that type of sequencing. Mm. But the goal would be to, to paint as clear a picture of possible of what microorganisms were present in the sample and what types of metabolisms they are capable of employing. So what kind of foods do they like to eat? What kind of things do they need to breathe? Um, things like that. And that would help us understand where they came from. Mm. As a sort of first order, we'll, we'll compare to what we know is on the inside of space station. So they do microbial yeah. monitoring routinely inside station. There have been DNA sequencing experiments that happen in there. So we have a big list and database of sort of here are the things that we know are always around inside station. Uh, and so if we see those outside, it's, it's the most logical explanation is that they came from the inside. Do you believe that, um, you know, we're doing this experiment on the International Space Station. You mentioned that it could help us a lot with exploring other planets, Mars, namely. Um, do you believe it would... Uh, the knowledge we gain from this would transfer nice, nicely to the surface of Mars, meaning the bacteria that likely grow in the vacuum of space would more or less 
maybe be the same that would grow on the surface of Mars in a completely different atmosphere and environment? Or is there a possibility that, you know, different things could grow? Um, does it translate nicely? It's not, yeah, that's a good question. It's not, it's not one-to-one. Okay. Um, but the things that make it hard to, for bacteria to grow in space, you know, in low Earth orbit are not completely different from the things that make it hard for bacteria to grow on the surface of Mars. Hmm. So in low Earth orbit, you have a lot of ultraviolet radiation to deal with. That's also a, a problem on the surface of Mars. Um, you know, in low Earth orbit, you have no oxygen. On the surface of Mars, you have very, very little oxygen. Uh, so it's not exactly the same, but it's similar. Um, the pressure on the surface of Mars is a lot lower than the pressure on Earth. Not as low as vacuum, but it's a lot lower. Okay. So it's it's similar. So you might expect to see similar types of microorganisms, but you you know ones that are adapted to be able to handle not having a lot of water around and exposure to ultraviolet radiation um, and and things like that. You know, big temperature swings. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not it's not a given that it would be the exact same species. Okay. Um, when the samples go down to the ground, how do you um, how do you handle them in terms of you're, you have it? You said you met you have them in this special. I think you said double cold box. Mm-hmm. Um, but how how does you transfer it? How do you transfer it from the spacecraft and then get it over to a facility and get it into a DNA sequencer? What does that process look like? Um, I'm learning a little bit about that myself. I'm not, cool. I'm not entirely sure, but my, my, there's a whole group at NASA called cold stowage. And this is their entire job is to make sure that stuff stays at the right temperature on the way up and on the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're going to be in charge, um, of unpacking the spacecraft and making sure it stays the right temperature until they're ready to hand it over to us. Okay. Um, and then when they hand it over to us, we'll, um, it's it's a chemical extraction process, and, I, and I'm not sure we've totally decided yet how which which process we're going to use to get the DNA out. But you basically take that swab and you 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 peel it off the stick um, and put it into a, a a test tube, and you add different um, different compounds and and heat it up and agitate it to try to break open the cells, mm. um, and then that DNA goes into the to the liquid that you've added to the test tube. Um, and then there are a bunch more steps to kind of clean that DNA up and get it into the right, um, configuration that you can put it onto the sequencer. Okay. But is there like the different techniques, do they have different levels of sensitivity or? Yeah, that's, that's what it is. There are, um, there are different ways to do it. Some of them are optimized for different types of microorganisms. Mm. Some of them are, are optimized for different size fragments of DNA. So the length of the DNA um, that, that comes out at the end of that process. Mm. Uh, and so we're gonna, we have some ideas about how we wanna do that, but we're gonna, we're gonna talk to our collaborators that DNA sequencing is a really, really rapidly evolving field. So even what we wrote, you know, we submitted this proposal to do this work in 2019 um, and even the ideas that we had about what we might want to do with the samples in terms of the details of how we were going to extract the DNA and do the sequencing in 2019 are kind of outdated at this point. It's, it's like if you 
it, it's it's evolving as fast as you know you get new computers, right? So if you mm -hmm. if you had a computer from 2019 today and in 2023, it's like kind of old and slow and not very exciting, <laughs> and you'd want to do your work on the you know play your game or whatever on the the newest best machine, and that's kind of what we want to do here too. So that's yeah. why if it sounds like I'm being vague, it's because we want to take advantage of whatever we think is the best technology available when when we actually have the sample in our hand to do the work. That's that's good though. That I mean, you're 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 planning for this. You have techniques down, but it sounds like it, it's very adaptable in terms of uh, how you can approach the uh, you know in actually getting to sequence the the DNA here. It's a, that's a pretty cool experiment if if you can just kind of kind of roll with whatever is the latest and greatest. That's our hope. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Um, you know, this is uh, this is just an absolutely fascinating kind of experiment that you that you guys are doing. But uh, I wonder, you, you mentioned you came from industry and started with the oil and gas, and now you're you're here and working on a mission like this, right? You're thinking about you're working on the International Space Station. You're thinking about the you know the contamination environment for different planets. I just wonder, just you know, looking at your just your job now and what you're doing as a whole, uh, how do you how do you feel about it? I mean, I'm I'm really excited about it. It's fun to be <laughs> it's fun to be involved in these conversations, and there are mm -hmm. um, it's a really long time scale. But um, I don't know. I I really like the idea that the work that that I'm doing and the work that the people I'm I'm working with are doing is is setting up other people for success. Mm -hmm. So if we if we do a good job of of minimizing contamination or preventing contamination, it's gonna it's gonna make it really easy or hopefully easier for another scientist to come along after me and look for life on Mars or you know understand how the solar system formed because they have these really great samples to work with. And I I don't know I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of that. This is. The work that I'm doing is 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 setting up the next person to be really successful or find something cool. Oh, that's awesome. Um, do you see yourself sticking with a, this kind of project for a while? Meaning, you know, it, it sounds like there's a chance that this could evolve and you could be doing something very similar with um, with uh, different spacecraft that are on and around the moon, um, gearing up for for a Mars mission. Do you see yourself sticking with this or? Do you kind of want to set a good example, pass it on to the next guy, and maybe do, try something new? I don't know. I, yeah, we'll see. We'll have to see how it goes. Yeah. Um, follow. What was your advice? It was uh, follow whatever you're interested in. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I think that'll that'll probably be my strategy. Whatever comes up. All right. That's really cool. Well, Aaron, this was an, this was so cool to be able to talk to you, and um, I know this is going to be launching pretty soon to the International Space Station, so I'm very excited, and I really hope the the timeliners can squeeze it in to the a, a very uh, a spacewalk that's coming up in the very near future, uh, so you can you can do this uh, sooner rather than later. This is this is going to be pretty exciting. So, Aaron Regberg, thank you so much for coming on Houston Weapon Podcast. What a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks a lot. Yeah, this has been really fun. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you learned something today. It was really a pleasure to talk to Dr. Aaron Regberg today, a very interesting experiment coming up, uh, launching aboard uh, Northrop Grumman's Cirrus 19 mission. 
You can always check NASA.gov for the latest experiments that are happening aboard the International Space Station. And also, uh, Aaron is part of the Astromaterials Research Group here at the at the Johnson Space Center, uh, and they have a website as well. You can check out some of the great things happening over in his group with Astromaterials. If you like podcasts, though, we have a lot of them at uh, NASA. You can go to NASA.gov slash podcast to check out all of them. Uh, I know uh, Curious Universe launched their latest season, so make sure to go and listen to them. You can also follow us specifically for Houston. We have a podcast at the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you use the hashtag AskNASA, you can ask a question on any one of those platforms. And if you want to Make sure you ask a question to us. You can also use that hashtag, but make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on February 16th, 2023. Thanks to Will Flato, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, Jaden Jennings, Aaron Anthony, and Rachel Berry. And of course, thanks again to Dr. Aaron Regberg for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.